You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. Great songs that we were able to sing this morning. I remember, I think, eighth grade English. My English teacher had us uh, memorize the poem, uh, Mighty Fortress is Our God, and just thankful every time. At the time, wasn't thankful, um, but at the now, uh, thankful for those opportunities where those truths are reminded, um, being able to reflect on just the strong lyrics that are contained there. If you've got kids that are a part of our younger kids class, they can be dismissed to the back. We're going to continue to, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11. And then we're going to continue to expand upon our use of our new technology. See how things Yeah, we're going to listen to a sermon today. No, I'm just kidding. No, we had posted a video on the city this week, and I don't know how many had had the chance to watch it, so I wanted us to take some time to watch it together. It's just a small, brief video that John Piper's uh, ministry put out. Um, see how well this works. Too many traps along the path, too many hurdles. At the root, the reason 
I hope you had sweet time in the Word this week as I did and were able to fellowship with our Lord uh, through His written Word. Um, as we turn our attention now this morning to Genesis chapter 11, um, we turn to a passage that could easily be construed as a boring section of Scripture as we look once again at a section of genealogy, but it has such important relevance for us today uh, because of the meanings and the truth being communicated through it. So let's turn our attention to Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. We move away from the account at Babel and the confusion that God uh, brought to the tongues and the languages there for the people in order to spread them out. And then Moses, the author, returns our attention to uh, Shem's descendants and uh, connects the next big account in this book uh, with the previous account here at Babel. So it says in verse 10, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, 
and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber, Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 109 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram in in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would encourage us this morning, convict us where we need it. Father, we pray that your word would come alive to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would teach us a deeper understanding of who you are so that our faith and trust can increase in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move away from uh, this section on the Tower of Babel, last week we talked about doctrine that unites us as God's people. So uh, as, as the people came together at Babel, they spoke one language, they had one history, they were one people, a people that had been uh, growing and developing since the flood, a people group that had been taught things about God, had rejected things about God, but probably at that time still had a very common understanding of the beliefs about God that Noah held to. And and the people come together and they desire to make a name for themselves. They desire not to spread out, which indicates that they understood the command of God to spread out. So that common understanding Romans chapter 1 tells us they rejected the knowledge about God, exchanged the glory of the creator for the creation. We said that idolatry really starts to spring up here in the endeavors to build Babel. God steps in, intervenes, confuses their language so that they cannot produce the maximum amount of evil that they were going down the road of. And so God spreads them out. And we said that the gospel is all about God bringing them back together, bringing people back from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So he gives them different languages, spreads them out, and now God is rescuing people back from every nation so that we now speak in the same language, the same spiritual tongue. And so we talked a little bit last week about the doctrines that unite us. We said, kind of a summary, a person's beliefs about Jesus, his commands for life and how others should be treated will ultimately determine whether I partner with that person in ministry or contend against them. 
So there are certain people, though they go to a different church, we can partner with them in ministry because of the core beliefs that we share. While we will worship differently on a Sunday morning, we can work together, partner together, minister together during the week because we share commonality about the most important things. And then we differ on things that are of second importance. But then there are others that because they don't hold to those core beliefs, we cannot partner with them. Instead, we view them as someone that we contend against, that they are circulating a false worldview or a false gospel that we work against, that we want to correct. Uh, it's, it's a result of what happened at Babel where mankind exchanged their knowledge of God for incorrect things, for lies, for deception. And so we work to fix those lies and fix uh, those deceptive truths. We said that ultimately it comes down to some theological things. What is a person's belief about Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus? All of these things are tied to our understanding of the gospel. Is the gospel enough or do we have to add to the gospel? Is Jesus's work sufficient or are there things, ceremonies, works that we must perform to add to our salvation? Did Jesus come in the flesh? Did Jesus come back from the dead? Is Jesus who he claimed to be? There's moral reminders given to us in 1 John. What is an individual's views on right and wrong? Does an individual see Jesus as Lord, meaning that uh, he dictates how we live our life because he's a sovereign king, because he's over the universe, he determines right and wrong. He instructs us about how to live. 1 John says that a, a true Christian, a true believer, someone who has embraced Jesus turns their back upon sin. It's also an individual who anticipates the return of Jesus, and the return of Jesus uh, leads to a moral-type lifestyle now. Social reminders that First John gives us, that we're to follow the example of Jesus and how we treat others, how we interact with others, that they are created in the image of God. And so we discussed last week that if someone loves Jesus and loves his commands and loves his people, and they define those things the same way as us, then it's an individual that we can partner with in ministry. And so as we talk about kind of joining up with some of the people in this area that are doing things that are gospel-related, that we can confidently say, yes, let's work with them, let's, let's partner with them because we believe the same things, the important things. So we come now to Genesis chapter 11 as we begin to see the the story of redemption unfold where nations have been developed and now God desires to rescue these nations back. Our summary sentence for this morning, uh, the life of Abraham, his calling and growth in faith serves as an example for how salvation functions in the life of all believers. Remember, Abraham is God's gracious response, his gracious answer to the problem at Babel. Remember, God's always responding here in Genesis. When sin happens, God judges the sin, but then he, he flows in with his grace right behind that. So Adam and Eve sin, he judges their sin, he's going to kick them out of the garden, but there's that, that grace that flows into the story where he says, I'm going to send someone to correct this. Cain and Abel, and, and then sin starts to flow from that, and then God brings the flood, and, and he, he communicates to Noah the grace that flows after the flood. That he's not going to bring that type of punishment again. And now we have the, the nations being dispersed. So God judges that sin. And then we don't have any type of grace flowing from that until now. When God begins to communicate to Abraham. That he wants to call him out. A man who's married without any children. 
wants to call him out and make a nation out of him and then rescue all nations through him. That's our summary for this morning. Some introductory notes for us. A summary of Genesis 1 through 11, because this is a big break here uh, in our understanding of Genesis. So we want to kind of look back through the first part here, Genesis 1 through 11. Some things that we can be reminded of, things that we've learned about God. You'll remember that we've said Genesis is our our origin for what we understand about God. And as we seek to teach others, disciple others, as we seek to send people from this church overseas to plant another church, people from another nation that have an incorrect view of who God is, we want to bring them to a correct understanding of God. And in doing so, we want to teach them the origins of that correct understanding. What we find in Genesis 1 through 11 is that God is real and we can trust him. God has presented himself that way up to this point. Through creation, God has established his existence. Romans 1 reminds us of that. Romans 2, that, that, that all things that, that we need to know about God can be known about God through general revelation. And then he comes in with the understanding of the things that aren't available through general revelation, through special revelation. God is real and we can trust him. God has established himself that way. We saw that in the garden. He presents himself as a God that can be trusted. But secondly, we find that God is personal and we can know him. God has invited his creation to be in fellowship with him. He's extremely involved in all of history. The people at Babel aren't permitted to just do their thing and have God sit off in the distance completely uninvolved. The Bible says that God is very personal. He comes down to see what they're up to. Personifying that for us as humans. Uh, he already He's already aware that he doesn't actually have to come into the earth to see this. He knows what's going on. But it's a, a personal understanding of God. And he's a God that we can know, that we can be in relationship with. Next, God is holy and we should fear him. These first 11 chapters establish the fact that God does not condone sin, both personal and corporate. That he steps in and intervenes and judges rebellious behavior towards him. But then God also presents himself as love, an individual, uh, a deity who can be, that we can be saved by. God is love and we can be saved by him. So an all-encompassing understanding of who God is, we find this in Genesis 1 through 11. That he's a personal God, he's an involved God, he's a holy God, he's a, a God that's loving and desires relationship with his creation. A God that works to save his creation. As we move to Genesis chapter 12, we see the next big section of Genesis, and it runs till the end, Genesis 12 through 50. The focus now moves to four men. So previously we focused on four different events here, creation, fall, flood, and then Babel. Now we move to an understanding of four men. So four big pillars of the faith presented to us here through the remainder of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So God has revealed himself through four events. We've learned things about God through creation through the fall, through the flood, and through Babel. We've seen a better understanding of who God is. We will continue to know God better as he reveals himself in the lives of these four individuals. What we'll also see through the remainder of Genesis is that deception and conflict become running themes in the lives of these men. Deception and conflict, family conflict, Jealousy, envy that leads to deception, lying, lack of trust, 
these two concepts become running themes. So despite the fact that these individuals are, are held in high regard within the church, we do learn very quickly that they are certainly not perfect and without the need of God's grace. Looking at Shem's uh, lineage here, his genealogy, a couple of things stand out that I want to point you to before we get into an introduction to Abraham's life. Uh, the time gap here between God working with Abraham versus what happened at Babel. We're talking about several, several generations here that pass before God really speaks to man again. So there's, there's some spiritual silence as far as scripture goes here. Generation after generation rolls by. God is punished and created nations as a result of that punishment. And we're not hearing any direct revelation from God until we get to the account of Abraham. This time gap allows for nations to be developed before God calls them back to him. But the, the reader, we, we should have the anticipation here of Noah said that blessing was coming through Shem. Will that blessing carry through? Will there be a blessing that continues through the line of Shem? And we see that in Abraham's existence. This genealogy here that, that's, that's contained here in this passage of Scripture for us, it authenticates Abram as the direct link to the promise in Genesis chapter 3 through the blessed line of Seth. So God promised in Genesis 3 that it would come, the, the, the Messiah would come through Adam and Eve. We then find out that it's going to come through Noah. Then Noah indicates to us that it's coming through Shem. And so this genealogy authenticates Jesus Christ as the true Messiah, the long-awaited one. It also prepare, propels our story forward. There's no historical information contained here in the lives of these men. We don't learn anything about these guys. We don't know if they're good guys, bad guys. We don't know really anything that they added to society. So we said one of the purposes of genealogies, propel, propel the story forward. And that's what we have this morning. These names are listed for us so that we can connect Abraham to the account in Babel. We see where he fits into the story. We also find as we read through this genealogy that children are being born to their parents earlier and earlier in their parents' lives. Whereas in previous genealogies that we've seen, we start seeing kids pop up in the hundreds years of their age. We now see it in the 30s and then in the 20s. So families, parents are having kids earlier. We also see that people aren't living as long any, anymore. That life after children is decreasing. Now, I do think you see in this genealogy a focus more on moving from death to life because there's no mention of the deaths here. Remember in the, in the previous genealogy we looked at, we talked about how long they lived and then they died. The focus now here is on life and the movement from death to life as the deaths are no longer mentioned in this genealogy. We also find that the lifespan decreases greatly after Peleg. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 10 verse 25, the scripture kind of pinpoints Peleg as being born around the time of Babel. And we see prior to Peleg's birth, people still living to be 400 plus years old. After Peleg is born, the lifespan decreases to the 200s. And then we start seeing it drop off significantly to the 100s. And so we see as the nations spread out and mankind becomes, uh, goes from being one people to many people, the lifespan starts to decrease. Um, that, that sin really starts to reign in the lives of these individuals and death starts to really reign as well. I think it's also worth reminding ourselves, just so we keep in context what's happening here in the story, 
is that Shem outlives Abraham. Based on what we have, and as long as there's no significant gaps in the genealogies, that Shem, who comes off the ark, is still alive when Abraham dies and lives all the way into the time of Jacob. So if we understand that, what we have here, that we can trace Jacob, who, who, who grows up and understands things about God, he can talk to Shem. Shem had talked to Methuselah, and Methuselah had the opportunity to talk to Adam. So we're talking about four individuals where we can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's significant. That's God's grace. That's God giving man zero excuses for not accepting the truths about him. That there, there's a connection there that, that we can talk to somebody who, who, who talked to somebody who talked to somebody that was there when this whole thing began. We have, we have deep spiritual insight because remember at this time they don't have divine revelation to read from. Everything's being passed down as tradition. Everything's being passed down uh, from what the previous generation remembers. And so having that close connection to God is really, really important for these people. And Jacob has the opportunity here to talk with Shem, who lived pre-flood. We then move into Terah's genealogy in verse 27. Terah's genealogy sets the stage for our understanding of Abraham's story. There's some key characters that are identified here in verses 27 through 32. Some key characters that are identified. First, we have Lot, Abraham's nephew. It says in verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. We know that Lot plays an important role in Abraham's life. Abraham feels responsibility because as we learn, Haran dies Abraham takes on uh, Lot and the responsibilities for Lot. Lot has some good times and some bad times in, in the story. Abraham ends up rescuing Lot. Lot ends up making some poor choices for he and his family that put his family in jeopardy. New Testament calls Lot a man of faith, a man of righteousness, though. And so we know that God was at work in Lot's life, largely because Abraham chose to invest in Lot. We also are introduced to Sarai, Abram's wife. We also have Nahor and Milcah. These two will become the grandparents of Laban and Rebekah. And we'll learn more about those two individuals as we get into the story. But Moses, as he's writing this story, goes ahead and introduces us to these individuals so that we can connect them as the story unfolds. The problem also is identified here in in these verses. So we've got some characters being identified, but then also the main problem being identified. It says here in um, verse 29, And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. Verse 30, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So Moses is setting the stage here. He's he's showing us the, uh, the defect here for the situation that God's wanting to build a nation, and he's choosing individuals that can't have kids. He's chosen two people that do not have children to produce the type of offspring needed to create a nation. And so God is setting the stage for he himself to receive the glory that comes from this story. It's also significant to note here that Sarai's parents are not mentioned. We later learn that the reason for that is because Abram marries his half-sister. That that Terah is actually the father of Sarai through a different mom. Um, and so Abraham will 
will rely on this relationship several times in his life. He will call upon the sister relationship with Sarah to protect himself. And so oftentimes we see uh, maybe some rebuke towards Abraham. Uh, It's a lie for sure, but there's some truth contained there. He did marry his sister. He married his half-sister, and he he calls upon that relationship often to protect himself um, for fear of his own life and her being taken from him. Some things that set the stage for us this morning as we get into an understanding of who Abraham is, I wanted us to, before we get into the narrative account of Abraham, I wanted us to take kind of an aerial perspective view on his life and understand, as our summary sentence says, that, that Abraham's life, his, his calling to salvation, his growth in his faith, these are examples of how salvation works in all of our lives. If we're believers, we're called the same way. We're called from a life of sin into a life of grace. And then we are called to live by faith and not by works. But then ultimately we are called to work after our salvation. We're called to be in partnership with God and his plan and his kingdom. And so I want us to see that through the life of Abram this morning. Again, kind of an aerial view before we get into the specifics of his narrative. The testimony of Abraham in Romans chapter 4 The New Testament draws upon Abraham a lot as an example of our faith. In Romans chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Okay, so Abraham, Paul sets Abraham up as our spiritual father. Not just the father of one nation, but the spiritual father of many nations as God begins to rescue people back that were dispersed at Babel. Abraham is set up as our spiritual father. This goes on in Galatians chapter 3 verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Skip down to verse 29 of Galatians 3. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, the reason I share this is because as I was studying uh, yesterday and really getting into the text and, and really seeking to, to draw out truths for us this morning, I was convicted a little bit because rarely does Abraham come up in my portrayal of the gospel to someone, right? So I'm, I'm heavy on Jesus. I'm heavy on the, the passages that are contained for us in the New Testament about the gospel and, and what the gospel is. I'll I'll interject my testimony a lot of times into my presentation of the gospel. 
But what I fail to do, I think, a lot of times is to incorporate Abraham into the story that I'm telling. And what I find in the New Testament is that Abraham is a giant pillar that's needed for a connection and understanding what the gospel means. Because Abraham is a real-life example from beginning to end when it comes to his sanctification process, right? So, so I can share my testimony all of us have a testimony. For some of us, our testimonies are more clear than others, right? Some of us were, were raised in the church, and as we think back to our salvation, it's a little muddy as to when we really put our faith and trust in Christ. I think Scripture is clear. There was a time, a point in time when you cross from death to life, when you cross from darkness to light. Sometimes it's hard for us to really pinpoint that moment because our, our faith was growing even from a little child before we really put our faith in Christ. We were understanding God. So for some of us, our testimonies are, are less clear than others. We still cling to those. We still hold to those. I think we still share those and present those. But Abraham's a man that we can talk about confidently and say, here's how this man was saved. He makes it to the end. So he's a, a verifiable piece of evidence who was saved and persevered till the very end. And I think the New Testament presents him as a prime example for what saving faith looks like in the life of an individual. I think too oftentimes, though, I separate Abraham and think, okay, he's a Jewish guy. If I'm talking to someone who's got an interest in Jewish history, then I can bring Abraham into the discussion. But I'm less prone to think, okay, I'm talking to a guy on the street. Let me talk about Abraham and his faith. But I think the individual needs to understand that we're sharing the gospel with that, hey, here's your spiritual dad. Here's the individual that God called out, put a special blessing upon his life, and used Abraham and his descendants to rescue people back to God. And you can be a part of that rescue. Abraham is an example because his faith is so very clear in the narrative. We see how salvation works in his life. And we can take people and point them to an understanding of the gospel. Because the Bible says the gospel was preached at the very beginning with Abraham when God started to communicate with Abraham. Gospel was preached to him that all nations were going to be rescued through Abraham and his descendant, Jesus Christ. So I want to challenge you this morning, especially if you're one who... Okay, I'm sharing the gospel. I'd love to really interject my testimony here, but honestly, my testimony is probably not the best example clarifying wise as to how the gospel works because I look back to my life and I'm still a little, uh, when, you know, when was my point of salvation? Abraham's a man who we can definitely point people to and say, here's how salvation works. Here's how it worked in my life. I'm sorry if that's a little confusing for you. Let me give you somebody that's a little bit more clear. Here's when God called this man. This man put his faith and trust in Christ. He's counted as righteous. He perseveres through the end. And what's great about Abraham is that he certainly wasn't perfect after he was declared righteous. That there's stumble after stumble after stumble. But what we find in the life of Abraham is a faith that is growing constantly. Grows at different rates at different times in his life. There's times when you read the narrative and you as the reader say, grow up in your faith. Like, I want this story to turn out better than it's turning out right now. But he's a great example for us of an individual who is saved and is learning what that means to be saved. Learning what it means to put his faith and trust in Christ. So I want to encourage you this morning to spend some time as we work through the narrative of Abraham, not just viewing it as a historical lesson, okay, here's Abraham, but really clinging to his example as an example that needs to be shared to others. Because as we share the gospel, people need to understand the connection. That Abraham is a spiritual father for us from a human standpoint. God is our father. Abraham is our spiritual father when it comes to the gospel being passed down. 
When it comes to nations being rescued, God chose Abraham to really begin to work through, he and his family. What we find in Scripture very clearly is that in your notes here, first of all, Abram is saved by grace. Abram saved by grace. Now, you remember that we talked about Noah. When God comes to Noah and communicates the, the plans for the flood and the ark, we said that God came to Noah and Noah was a righteous man. And then we spent some time talking about the fact that, okay, Noah wasn't the type of guy who earned righteousness. And so God chose him because he was righteous. We, we tied his righteousness to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Noah was living faithfully when God came to him and said, the flood is coming, build an ark. Abram was not. Abram was not a man who, Scripture indicates, was fearful of God, was worshiping the one true God. He's a guy who grew up in a pagan society, most likely worshiping pagan gods. And tying it to his location here in Ur, most likely worshiping the moon as a god. And this is the setting that God says, okay, I'm going to choose Abraham. So what we find here is that there's no reason, absolutely no reason for God to say, Abram's my guy. He's just your average guy with a wife, no kids. So in their context, kind of viewed as less than the ideal, doing their thing, worshiping the gods of their people. And God says, that's who I'm choosing. That's who I'm choosing to to work my plan of rescue through. We find this understanding in Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. So the indication here about his pagan worship is not contained for us here in Genesis. It's found for us in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. God says, when I looked down and when I started to do this work, your father Abraham was worshiping other gods. He he wasn't in relationship with me. And this is the picture that we have in our own salvation, right? The the day that the gospel came to you and whatever form that took, whoever shared that with you, whether you grew up being taught the gospel and then at some point it clicked and you surrendered or whether someone came to you later in life and shared the gospel with you, you were living in a state where you were worshiping other gods, whether there were tangible gods that we could talk about or whether there was simply the God of self, you were in bondage to sin You wanted to shake off the existence of God in order to deify yourself, basically, to where you could do things the way you wanted to do them. And then the gospel came to you by God's grace, not because you warranted it, not because you deserved it, but the gospel entered into your life and you were given the opportunity to repent and to surrender to Jesus Christ. The same opportunity given here to Abraham. God calls Abram out of a pagan society of idolatry. Idolatry had grown Since the time of Babel, people that were dispersed from Babel, it seems, took the worship of Babel with them versus the worship of Yahweh. And as these nations start to grow and develop, we can look back into these societies and see false worship at their origin. And so God God works into Abram's life 
where there's really nothing to work with from a human standpoint. God steps in and begins to work graciously. Abram's done nothing to warrant this type of interaction with God. He's childless. He's an idolater. God loves to be in the business of calling people and using people that points to him getting all of the glory. And that's what he does here in his selection of Abram and Sarah. This situation is also contrasted with Babel. You'll remember at Babel, man assembled large numbers of great people to make a name for themselves. God chooses two weak individuals to build a name for himself. Right, mankind, Nimrod, organizes this huge endeavor where people are gathered together, strong people. Let's work together. Let's build a name for ourselves. God says, I'll take these two. These two who are advanced in years, who have no children. These are the two that I'm going to pull out. These are the two that I'm going to make my name great with so that I really receive the greatness of the name by the people that I choose. God invites Abram into this relationship. It's not something that that God should feel the need to beg for. It's an invitation to be in relationship with the Holy One that created everything. Too often times I feel like we have to be in the business of begging people to do what's right. Begging people to submit to Christ. And we fail to realize what a glorious invitation it is that Christ would desire us to be in relationship with Him. That Christ would desire to give us things to do for Him. It's not a burden. His commands are not burdensome. This is an invitation to Abram, a rescue for Abram. And Abram responds to it. Abram saved by grace. God graciously steps into Abram's life when he is wandering away into pagan worship and God rescues him back to the one true God. Secondly, though, Abram is saved by faith. Again, this parallels our salvation. God comes to us. When we have nothing good to offer him, no good works that would earn favor with him, God graciously comes to us and invites us into relationship with him by grace. And the response that we have is by faith. Scripture tells us, not by works. And that's what we see here through Abram. Abram is saved by faith. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house To the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. God promises to change the course of history through one man and his offspring. God is launching a plan of redemption for all peoples by developing one nation. God is planning to reform creation and transform the nations through Abram. Abram Abram becomes our spiritual father. Romans 11 talks about him being the tree that we get grafted into. That God chose a people and then he calls other people to be a part of that people. And this is the beginning of our spiritual heritage. This is the beginning of our spiritual family tree as we begin this narrative account of Abraham, we look back and we can, we can see ourselves involved in this story. It's an Israelite flavor, and yet what we find in the New Testament is that we are now grafted into that family. And so this becomes our story as much as theirs. We can rejoice over God's working in Abram's life. God makes a series of promises to Abram without asking him to do anything except to trust in his promises to have faith. This is the same invitation with the gospel, 
right? We are, we are invited to participate with God, not to where we are called to do anything except to trust in the promises that the gospel makes to us, that we can be saved from our sins through Christ for his glory. That's the promise given to Abraham here. When God calls and begins to initiate this covenant, God's doing all the talking, and God's talking about everything that he's going to do, not things that Abram's going to do, right? It's not, hey, I'd like to work with you, Abram, but here's some things that I need you to do. And then once you've accomplished these things, then we can really sit down and talk. God simply says, Abram, I want you to leave, and I want you to come follow me, and here's the things that I'm going to do when you make that decision. It's the same for us in the gospel. It's come and follow me, Jesus says, all through the New Testament. And then promises are made about what Christ will do in our life. Abram's called to leave. Abram and his family are dwelling in a, in a town, in a country that's, that's destined for destruction. And so the call here is to leave the city of destruction and find the city of God. This is a picture of, of John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. This is Abram who is destined for destruction. God comes to him and says, leave and doesn't really tell him fully where he's going. Doesn't fully tell him how to get there. Just tells him the next step along the way. You find that if you've ever read the book of Pilgrim's Progress. As he's journeying to the celestial city. There's doubts and conflict along the way. Just like Abraham experiences. But ultimately it's a pilgrimage that Abram joins here. Starts here in response to God's calling upon his life. Abram responds by living in, an, in divine imagination, we could say. In Hebrews chapter 11, as Abram steps forth with his family, he journeys into the unknown. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. With all of Abram's faults, with all of his ups and downs, you never hear any type of conversation about, we should go back to our home. You don't have that, right? You have that with Israel when, when they vacate Egypt. Time and time again, children of Israel say, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. Lot's wife turns and says, let's go back to Sodom. Like, I, I miss what we're leaving. You never see that from Abram. You see doubt and confusion and, and, and hesitation, but you never, we, at least in Scripture, not to say that it didn't happen, but we don't in Scripture have anything contained about him and Sarah sitting down and saying, we should have never left Ur. We should have never left Haran. We should go back. They stepped out in faith, and it was a step of faith that led to perseverance. Despite ups and downs, they never really wandered from the straight path. We are on path with God. He has made promises to us, and we believe those promises. All the greats have lived on promises, not explanations. All through Hebrews 11, it's people responding to promises of God in the midst of not always knowing how those promises would be carried out. George Mueller says, Faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. Confidence in the character of God 
whose ways you may not understand at the time. And that's what's so important about the things that we're learning about God right now in Genesis. And it's so important that we communicate these things to others that we disciple, especially in a context where we go somewhere where their knowledge of God is really, really messed up. That we communicate the character of God versus coming in and making promises ourselves about what God will do for them. That's where so many have gotten off base, especially in Uganda. So let's keep it in context of where we're wanting to go. Chris will tell you quite vocally that the biggest problem in Uganda is people coming and making promises about what God will do for them that are not contained in Scripture prosperity type promises that the Ugandan people have bought into. That's the dominant false perspective that Chris says we will have to battle against. And even in talking with other, the other pastor over there, he said the prosperity gospel runs rampant in the lives of the Ugandan people. They have false expectations about what God wants to do in their life. Promises that have been made by the white man who has come preaching a false gospel. We don't have any promises given to us like Abram has here. Like Abram has some specific promises. For us, all of our promises are delayed as a Christian, right? That God is going to do things in us that ultimately will come to fruition when Jesus comes back. If we want to say that God has promised us anything, it's that he's promised us trials and tribulations versus any type of guarantee that life will get better when we step out in faith to follow him. Now, Abram has long-distance promises here, even, and we find from Hebrews that he didn't even see these promises fulfilled fully in his lifetime. He steps out in faith and says, God's promising to do some things. I'm trusting that he will fulfill those promises. Same truth for us as Christians today. We're saved by grace. We're saved by faith. The expectation is is that we believe the promises of God. Specifically, that, that we can do nothing to earn salvation, that Christ has done everything, and that Christ is coming back one day to rescue us from death. Those promises given to us in the New Testament as believers. Abram's faith was slow developing at times, we find here in Scripture. There's highs and lows. Let's talk about this for a second. Let's get some feedback from you. What are some of the highs and some of the lows that you recall regularly when it comes to just thinking about Abraham and his life? What are some of the highs and lows in that narrative story? His faith and sacrifice of Isaac towards the end of his life where uh, he has finally been given the promised child, a boy that he loves dearly, and God asks for that boy back. A high in his life when it comes to faith. Other thoughts on highs and lows of Abraham? Okay. Yep. When he, when he lies about Sarah being his sister, he's, uh, he's fearful of his own life. Evidence that he's not trusting in God because how can God make a great nation out of him if he dies before having a child? And so um, it's an evidence of lack of faith. On, on multiple occasions, this, this happens where he lies about her being his sister only. She is his sister, but also his wife. That's, that's who she is. That's her new identity. She's, she's your wife now. She was your sister. Now she's your wife. Um, but he wants to revert back to her previous relationship to him. Other highs and lows that stand out to you. Okay, yep, having a, having a form of belief and a form of patience and then that wavering when they want to kind of bring in some side help to create offspring for Abraham. 
you know, oftentimes we think of Abraham as, as, as an old guy with a beard that, that's kind of on the back end of life, but he's pretty heroic when he has to rescue Lot. You know, Lot's, Lot's been kidnapped, and he kind of goes to battle and, and rescues him back. Definitely some highs and lows in the life of Abraham, but he serves as a great example to us as a man who has a growing faith through his life. One of the, one of the highs that we'll eventually see in Genesis chapter 23, evidence of his faith, is that when Sarah dies, he spends an exorbitant amount of money to purchase her burial plot in the land of Canaan. He says, this is where we're going to end up. You'll remember Joseph had concerns about where his bones were going to end up as well. He said, when we leave this place, take my bones with you and bury them in Canaan. Abraham says, we're not here right now, but we will be here. And so my wife is dead and she will be buried in our homeland where we will eventually dwell as a people. A sign of his faith at the end of his age in Genesis chapter 23. We find that Abram's called to leave Ur. But there, there, there's, some, there's some things that we need to work through here in Genesis chapter 11 to understand how this plays out. In Genesis chapter 11, it actually says in verse 31 that Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is talking about this incident. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. We've already looked at it once. Um, Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So when Abram starts off, he's living in Haran, or he's living in Ur, sorry. And then they travel to Haran, and his family comes with him. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law and his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Now we don't know how all this plays out. But we find out that in verse in chapter 12 that God called Abram. But Stephen reminds us in Acts that this happened before he got to Haran. And so it seems that God comes to Abram. that There's a conversation with his family and Terah his dad decides to come along with him. So, so God has said, leave your family and, and go where I'm calling you to go to. Abram has a conversation with his family, and actually some of his family decide to come along. That could be a good thing, ends up probably being a bad thing, because the indication here seems to be that they go to Haran, and then dad kind of takes the lead. God came to Abram, but Haran seems to take the, or Terah seems to take the lead here, and they settle in Haran, a town not too far from Ur, a town very similar to Ur. And they settle down here until Terah dies. And then they move on to our understanding of Abram abandoning all and following what God has called him to do. Some slow developing faith here, maybe even in Abram's eyes, as he fails to, to take the lead for the family, potentially, and defers some to his dad here. Um, some other things that are maybe worth talking about, just because these type of texts come under criticism from those that will look for any way and every way 
to discount the existence of God. Um, something that's real minor here, but some people would like to hang their hat on it as to why they should not respond to the historical Jesus Christ because there's some discrepancy about Tara's age and when he died. So let's talk about this briefly. I'm going to give you some possible solutions to this. And let me kind of set the stage for why this is an issue. Um, in Genesis 11, verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Okay, so the way the text reads, we would read it as Terah being 70 years old when Abram's born to him. 70 years old. Then we find in Genesis 12, verse 4, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay? So, Terah was 70. Abram was 75 when he leaves Haran to start going where Yahweh wants him to go. That would put Terah at what age? A little math word problem here. 145. Okay? 145. Um... Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, so if we jump back to Acts 7, what event led to Abram leaving Haran? Verse 4. I'm going to have somebody look that one up. So whoever gets there first, tell me what the event was that led to him leaving Haran. After his father died. Okay, so after his father died, he leaves Haran to go where Yahweh wants him to go. Now we jump back to Genesis 11. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. There's a numbers issue here, okay? He's 70 when he supposedly has Abraham, Abram. Abram is 75 when he leaves Haran. That would put Terah at 145. Stephen says he left when dad died. But Genesis says he died when he was 205 years old. Which puts us at what? How many years are we off here? 60. We're about 60 years off. Okay. So which part's accurate? Which part's not? Or is there an explanation that kind of merges these together? I'm going to give you a couple of possible explanations. Again, not because this is real crucial, right? Like this isn't, this isn't determining anybody's understanding of the gospel, right? This is, this is historical stuff. But again, some people want to hang their hats on this, okay? So some possible explanations here about the conflict. Um, some are better than others. First is that Abraham was not the firstborn. That he's listed first in that order where it says Terah was 70 and then he had Abram. That he's listed first because of uh, preeminence that he's the most important son but that actually Terah had him later in life so we could account for the 60 years by actually saying that Terah had him at what 130 years old and then Abram grows up in 75 years later so 75 plus 130 would put us at 205 now Abram leaves and uh, Terah's died so, so, we, so we can merge that together, mesh that together. There's no problems there with the text. The only issue with that perspective is Terah had a son at 130 years old and Abram's confused as to whether he can have a child and he's not even 100 yet. He would have a direct reference to 
well, my dad had me when I was 130. Like, I haven't passed prime just yet. And that's not to say that there haven't been times where we've doubted God when we've had a prime example in our life as to why we shouldn't. But that does kind of stand out as a criticism towards this view. Why would Abram be so concerned about his age if Daddy Tara had him at 130? Um, I think it's one of the stronger views, though, about how to reconcile some of this because the next perspective is that... Um, that Terah actually died when he was 145, as some of the texts say. So some of the texts would not say 205, that, that, that he actually died at 145. Um, kind of going along with that, there's also the possibility that Stephen misquoted the fact that he had died, that Stephen was going off a text that wasn't completely accurate. And so Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, he under divine inspiration, writes down what Stephen is saying, but he writes it down as Stephen is saying it and doesn't correct the mistake by Stephen. Others would say that Stephen is talking about Tara being spiritually dead, that he gets to Haran, he goes back to worshiping the moon god. He had started out, but in, in, in similar to Pilgrim's Progress, had encountered some trouble and decided to go back to his old way of life. And so Abram left Haran when his dad was spiritually dead to him. I feel like you have to really get into some explanations to make that work. To me, I, would, I, I think it's easier to just simply say, Abram wasn't the firstborn. Abram was born later in life. He was born when Terah was probably 130 years old, that Terah started having children at 70. Abraham wasn't the firstborn, and that that accounts for the 60 years. Again, I don't think this is really all that important, but this is an example of other many texts in Scripture that come up that as you're engaging with gospel conversation, Somebody will love to bring up something so obscure as this and say, and this is why I don't believe the Bible. And you're like, wow, like that, that's why you don't believe the Bible. Historical things that we hold to outside of the Bible have these type of dating conflicts as well. So this is not unique to scripture. Things that we hold as authoritatively true about other events outside of the Bible, we encounter difficulties with dates and these type of details just based on manuscripts being passed down. <laughs> Excuse me. So, yeah, that's just getting me all choked up. I mean, this is its really not that important. We shouldn't get choked up about this, okay? Um, at the end of the day, it's okay. We don't know how old Terah was when he had Abram, and we don't know how old he was when he died necessarily. Okay. Um, before we get to this last point, uh, Abram's faith was based on a confident expectation in Christ. So, um, Abram steps out in faith. We see his faith is growing and, and maturing, that there's some bumps along the way. I think it's important to note that when dad, <coughs> when dad stopped and settled down, Abram didn't. Like Abram was willing to go further than what his dad was willing to do. Now, some of us, and this is, this is worth mentioning, some of us grew up with great dads that set the spiritual barometer for us that we could follow, that, that really set, it, set the course for us. Some of you have dads in your life right now that you are you will do very well to continue down the path that your dad has gone. Others of us come from situations where dad got off the path and wandered. And we now have to set the spirit direction for our family moving forward. And Abram is an example where he bucked the system and said, we will move forward. Dad settled down here in Heron once again. We will continue to press forward. We will not stay here. Um... Abram's faith based on a confident expectation of Christ in John eight fifty six. This again ties 
Abram's faith to being very similar to our faith. In John chapter 8, Jesus talking about Abram or Abraham in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus talking in the context of the Jewish people. Showing his relevance, he says, your father Abraham, who you put so much faith and trust in, he looked forward to my day. He saw it down the line. He saw that I was coming. He rejoiced and was glad in it. Jesus calling his fellow Jewish people to rejoice and be glad in him as well. But it's a reminder to us that Abram's faith was also in the Messiah, just as our, just as our saving faith is today. Romans 4.23 echoes this, that the faith of Abraham and our faith are very similar in verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Then lastly, Abram is saved for work. So he's saved by grace. He's saved by faith. Nothing that warrants him entering into a relationship with Christ. God does all that, brings him into that relationship for a specific purpose, for a specific purpose, and that's to now work for the king. God's blessings to be given are not to make Abram happy or comfortable, but instead for him to bless others. His blessings are meant to be shared, and we're going to get into this more in detail, but back in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And all in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The teaching here, what God's communicating to Abram, is I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great for the purpose of you turning around and being a blessing. The implication here is that it's meant to be shared. God has placed us in his world with his goods and challenged us to use his world and his goods for his glory and the good of others. First Timothy six seventeen points us to this. And then we're going to close with two application questions. First Timothy chapter six, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. God has placed us here on this earth. He's called us to salvation. He's then turned around and given to us gifts, abilities, talents, for some of us possessions. He's given us all kinds of different things to steward over that we'll give an account for. And he's given us those things not to make life great here on this earth for us. He's given us those things to then turn around and be a blessing to others. He called Abram the same way, called him from grace, wasn't in a stand, in a set, in a, uh, a setup where he merited God's favor, calls him from grace. He's a pagan worshiper, calls him to salvation. Abram responds not with a bunch of good works that, that verifies and, and earns that salvation, but responds in faith and says, I'm going to trust these promises. 
We trust the promises of the gospel as well. And then we're saved for the purposes of working for Christ in his kingdom and using everything that God gives us to be a blessing to others. God says, I'm making a great nation out of you, Abram. I'm making you great. Why? So that you can turn around and be a blessing to all the other nations so that they can be saved from my glory. And so that leaves us with two application questions that I want us to to continue to come back to as we move into the narrative of Abraham. How can God's blessings towards you be used to benefit people around you? How can God's blessings towards you be used to benefit people around you? And then question number two, am I a vehicle of blessing to others? So basically the same question, just repackaged a little bit differently. How can, how can you use the blessings that God's given you to be a benefit to people around you? And are you currently doing that? Are you currently a blessing to others? Are you fulfilling the reason that you were saved? Now we can spiritualize this and say, okay, the, the, the gospel came to me. The gospel needs to be shared with others. But we can also make this real physical and say, okay, God has given me a truck. And so when someone needs to move in the church, I'm going to do everything that I can to work it into my schedule to where I can be available and make my truck a blessing to that family. Like that, that's, that's the minimal, like, okay, let's just talk bare bones, physical stuff here. But then we can really spiritualize it and say, okay, we have the gospel. The gospel needs to be shared. I need to be a blessing spiritually to those around me. But then God has also gifted me with physical things that I too need to turn around and be a blessing towards others with. Are you considered a vehicle of blessing to others? Is your neighborhood better because you live there? Are you a blessing to that environment? Or is your existence obsolete in the minds of others? They don't even know you're there. Are you a blessing to others? Are you a vehicle of blessing? Are you working for the kingdom in a way where you are blessing others with what God has blessed you with? You can kind of gauge this maybe and gauge this by thinking just, kind of meditating back, when's the last time you were thanked for being a blessing? When's the last time somebody came to you and thanked you for the blessing that you are in their life? That's one way to kind of gauge it. Um, Gosh, and I had another one. Um, It came to me after all my notes were done. has someone has someone thanked you recently uh, for being a blessing? And I, and I can't think of the other way that I was going to help you um, gauge that. If it comes to me again, I'll, I'll share it with you. Uh, but, but I want you to be thinking about that this week. Um, thinking about whether you are being a blessing to other people. That was the call upon Abram's life. I'm calling you to come follow me because my big plan is to bless everybody to bless all the nations. But he says, I'm going to start with you, Abram. I'm going to make a nation out of you. In turn, you're going to turn around and be a blessing to the other nations. God could have easily said, I'm just going to do this myself. I'm just going to bless all the nations. But God says, I want to, I want to partner with you as my creation. And that's, that's just by God's grace as well, that he would even include us in this plan, giving us purpose for our existence. But he says, I'm calling you to salvation. Why? So that you can turn around and be a blessing to others. So I want you to be thinking through that this week as we... Prepare to go into the narrative of Abraham. Are you currently being a blessing to others? Have you been thanked recently? Oh, here's the other thing. 
are you, I knew if I talked long enough it would come back to me. How frequently are you called upon to serve other people? Are you considered somebody who, in a time of need, I can call upon this person because they're reliable, they're available, they have the type of disposition that makes you, you have the type of disposition that makes you the type of person that's sought out when something is needed. So when's the last time you were thanked by somebody for being a blessing? And how frequently are you called upon by others in this church, outside this church, people that you work with in your neighborhood? How frequently are you called upon by others when they have a need? They say, you know what? I can go to so-and-so. That person is always a blessing. They're always willing to help. They're always willing to give. They're generous, not just financially, but just with their stuff. Are you that type of person? It's consistently being thanked for being a blessing. And then how often are you called upon by others because they know you will be a blessing? Those are two ways to kind of gauge it. Be honest with yourself. And if it's, if it's infrequent, that's okay because question one applies to you. How can you start being a blessing to others based on how God has blessed you? All right, let's pray together. Father, we, we come to you and we thank you so much uh, for the reminders that we've seen this morning. God, we want to praise you and, and thank you for our salvation. We praise you and thank you that we can look to the life of Abraham and see an example of how this saving faith works that we read about so much in the New Testament. God, I pray that we would be mindful that Abraham is an individual that should be talked about regularly in our gospel conversations. Because he was talked about regularly in the New Testament when they were having gospel conversations. God, help us to be reminded that while we are not Jewish, he is our spiritual father who has passed down his faith to us. So God, I pray that we'd be encouraged as we study his life, that ultimately we'd be drawn to you and the work that you did. God, help us to be encouraged that in the midst of our failures, that Abraham failed as well. But God, I pray that in seeing his failures, we would see the increase in faith and trust that ultimately becomes what he's known for. Father, I'm thankful that as we read the, the New Testament that the things that are highlighted are his highs. And God, I pray that we would be a church that as we increase in our faith, as we stumble along the way, that ultimately at the end of our life, the things that we are remembered for are our highs. God, I'm thankful that you save us by your grace. God, remind us daily that we, we have not warranted your favor upon us. God, I'm thankful that when you came to us for salvation, you came to us making promises of what you were going to do rather than asking us to complete a list. Father, I pray that we would be reminded constantly that we are saved by faith and trust in the promises that you've made concerning what you've already done and what you will do. Father, I pray that as we enter into this account in Genesis that we would be reminded that we have been saved to work. And God, I pray that we would be faithful to be a blessing to others around us, that we would use our gifts and abilities and resources, our possessions, that we would be generous people placed here on this earth to enjoy your earth, but to help others enjoy it as well. God, help us to evaluate ourselves. Are we thanked regularly for being a blessing? Are we called upon regularly to be a blessing? If not, I pray that we would make the necessary changes to become those type of people.
Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.